In the world of pro wrestling, characters come and go all the time. Sometimes characters only stick around for a matter of months, never to be seen again. But there are some characters that become woven into the fabric of the business. Kane is one of those characters, a truly iconic superstar since his debut in 1997. But for Glenn Jacobs, his career didn't start in 1997. He fell victim to a series of terrible, failed gimmicks in the early 90s. In many ways, the role of Kane was his last chance in the wrestling industry. Before becoming Kane, Jacobs never had any difficulty getting noticed. Standing at 6 feet 8 inches and 300 pounds, wrestling promoters were certainly willing to give Jacobs a chance. He debuted in 1992 under the name Angus King and appeared for the USWA as the brilliantly named Christmas Creature and then later as Doomsday. Jacobs even briefly appeared in WCW as Bruiser Mastino where he lost to Sting in less than 3 minutes on an episode of Saturday Night. Jim Cornette hired Jacobs in January 1995 for his Smoky Mountain wrestling territory. He rather distastefully became known as Unabom, which was a reference to the terrorist Ted Kaczynski. Cornette had a working relationship with Vince McMahon at the time, and so it wasn't long before Jacobs was preparing for his debut in the WWF. He was ecstatic to have finally made it to the big time, but his excitement would be very short-lived. The character of Dr. Isaac Yankum, DDS, was simple. He was an evil dentist. In 1995, Bret Hart was involved in a terrible feud with Jerry Lawler. The two had wrestled in a Kiss My Foot match, which concluded rather disgustingly with Bret Hart shoving his toes into Jerry Lawler's mouth. Fans were led to believe that Lawler had needed dental work after the match, and so he came into contact with the evil orthodontist. Yankum would go on to face Bret Hart in a series of matches that were mostly terrible. The character was, unsurprisingly, a flop, and it made Jacobs extremely depressed. He knew how bad the gimmick was from day one, and he believed that this would be his only chance in the WWF. By September 1996, Vince McMahon thankfully gave up on this awful gimmick, and everyone sighed a breath of relief. Unfortunately for Jacobs, however, what McMahon had lined up for him next was arguably even worse. When Scott Hall and Kevin Nash decided to defect to WCW, Vince McMahon lost two of his biggest ever superstars in Razor Ramon and Diesel. In a ridiculously short-sighted move, he decided to keep the Diesel and Razor Ramon characters alive, and so Jacobs was lumbered with the task of becoming the new Diesel. Replacing the men behind the characters was a real low point during the mid-90s. While WCW was riding high and kicking the WWF's ass in the ratings each week, it started to seem like Vince McMahon was losing his mind. For Glenn Jacobs, it was just another misstep in his career. In an interview, Jacobs said, My career before Kane stunk. 
I'd been given opportunities, but they weren't anything I could do very well. The character Isaac Yankum DDS, and then you had the Diesel character, which was an imitation and was never going to work out very well. I thought that I would have a very short career, and one not noteworthy of anything. Lucky for Jacobs, this was the darkness before the light. His breakout role was just on the horizon, and it was going to be a doozy. By mid-1997, the WWF had painted themselves into a corner. The Undertaker had been relentlessly dominant since his debut back in 1990, and they'd positioned him as an almost unbeatable force in the ring. Bruce Pritchard described this problem on his podcast. He's a unique character, and it's tough to make someone believably competitive with The Undertaker. As we were trying to lay out our year, the next six months ahead, you go, God, he's beaten everybody. This is not a credible opponent. That's not a credible opponent. We need to create something for him. During a brainstorming session, a unique idea came to Pritchard. He asked, what if The Undertaker had a brother? What came next was one of wrestling's most unique and memorable storylines. Paul Bearer was The Undertaker's long-time manager for many years. He turned against him in 1996 and sided with Mankind, Undertaker's arch-enemy. The WWF masterfully told the story of The Undertaker's hidden past. Bearer had worked for The Undertaker's parents at their funeral home business many years ago, when The Undertaker and his younger brother were just children. One fateful night, The Undertaker and Kane were playing with matches when things got out of control. A match lit by The Undertaker caused a huge inferno that engulfed the funeral home and killed both of his parents and his kid brother. Shockingly, Paul Bearer revealed that he had a secret affair with Taker's mother before she died, and Kane was actually his son. For all these years, The Undertaker had believed his brother to be dead, when in fact, he'd actually survived. Kane had emerged from the fire both badly disfigured and psychologically scarred, and he'd spent the last two decades sequestered in a mental institution. Paul Bearer had kept this a secret from The Undertaker for his own protection all these years, but now he was ready to unleash him. The Undertaker appeared to be facing his biggest, most personal challenge yet. Now it was only a matter of waiting for Kane to make his presence felt. The WWF really needed to deliver the goods when it came to presenting the character of Kane. Thank goodness, then, that they knocked it out of the park. At Bad Blood in October 1997, The Undertaker faced Shawn Michaels in the very first Hell in a Cell match. The match was violent, bloody and brilliant, and after almost 40 minutes, it looked as though The Undertaker was going to win. He signalled for the end of the match. And then the arena went dark. Kane finally made his spectacular entrance, ready to strike vengeance into his older brother after decades of absence. Anyone who was watching live at the time will tell you that this debut gave goosebumps. This was literally the first time we'd ever set eyes on Kane, and it was like watching a monster from a horror movie striding towards the ring. As a character, this original version of Kane felt as iconic 
as the likes of Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th or Michael Myers from Halloween, Kane tore the cell door off its hinges and delivered a tombstone pile driver to The Undertaker. For the first time in a long time, the dead man was under threat. The build-up to Kane's debut was perfect. Paul Bearer had to be given a lot of the credit for that. His promos in the lead-up were awe-inspiring. He ranted with increasing ferocity about The Undertaker's mythical brother. For Glenn Jacobs, he was relieved that he'd finally hit upon a winning gimmick and wearing the mask meant that the fans didn't recognise him from those earlier awful gimmicks that he was forced to portray. Initially, the character was going to be called Inferno. Bruce always liked the name Kane. I thought Inferno sounded very comic book characterish for where we were going with this, so we suggested the name Kane. Undertaker, when he initially came in, was Kane the Undertaker, and then they dropped the Kane part and it became the Undertaker. Also, with the biblical story of Cain and Abel, we thought that fit. And so began the build-up to Kane vs. The Undertaker at WrestleMania 14 in March 1998. On the road to WrestleMania, Kane embarked on a rampage, continually trying to provoke his brother into a confrontation. The Undertaker said that he would never face his own brother in the ring, but eventually Kane managed to provoke him enough and the match was set. Watching the match at WrestleMania at the time, it was a spectacle. The build-up had just been masterful. In hindsight, when you watch it back now, it was just an average brawl that went on for about six minutes too long. They would have far better matches with each other over the years, and they would wrestle each other a lot, by the way. Nonetheless, Kane was on the path to becoming one of wrestling's most iconic characters, and Glenn Jacobs had finally found his place in the business. Eventually, Kane and The Undertaker would switch roles. The Undertaker played the heel and Kane played the babyface and then they teamed up for the first time together as the Brothers of Destruction. As the years went on, the character would morph and change in different ways. In the mould of those classic horror movie villains, Kane was silent to begin with, he never spoke, but a few months down the line, they gave him a voice thanks to an electronic larynx which allowed him to cut promos of a sort. The Kane character proved to be far more versatile than originally expected. When they first introduced the character, they didn't know whether it was going to last for years, they didn't even know if it was going to last for months but Kane certainly captured the fans' imagination. Sometimes he was a main eventer, sometimes he was in a tag team, and sometimes he was further down the card. He just fit into feuds at every single level. They constantly evolved the character over two decades. In 2002, Kane appeared with a newly updated costume and a different mask. Jacobs had always complained that the original mask restricted his breathing during matches, and so this new half-mask solved that problem. And then, in 2003, Kane faced Triple H for the World Heavyweight Championship. Before the match, General Manager Eric Bischoff added the stipulation that Kane would have to lose the mask entirely if he lost the contest. And so, Kane lost to Triple H, and he took the mask off for the first time ever. In one sense, it was a good idea to take the mask off. It allowed the fans to see his full range of facial expressions, which is something that Jacobs was 
was very good at. The only problem was, the makeup they put on him looked really dumb. It was supposed to represent the disfigurement that Kane had suffered during the fire at the funeral home, but not only did it look bad, it also took ages for them to apply. And so, WWE came up with an interesting twist. One night, Kane came to the ring without any makeup at all. The explanation was that he had dysmorphia. He'd suffered psychologically from the inferno, but the physical scars were all in his head. It was a bit of a stretch, but I suppose we should be grateful that WWE bothered to provide an explanation at all. Kane had some memorable feuds during his Unmasked era. Who can forget the relationship with Lita and the subsequent feud with Edge, for example, or the 2007 Brothers of Destruction reunion? Don't get me wrong, there was some really bad stuff too. Here was his worst ever feud against the great Carly. Sorry for reminding you of that particular feud. Into the 2010s, Kane put the mask back on, with no real explanation as to why. We were treated to the odd couple tag team of Kane and Daniel Bryan, however. Team Hell No provided some real laugh-out-load moments, and it was a launching point for Daniel Bryan as a babyface on the roster. Then Kane became a member of the Authority. This time, he appeared without the mask and wearing a suit. As Glenn Jacobs began focusing on his ventures outside wrestling, he returned only occasionally, including for one last run with his on-screen brother. After more than 25 years appearing for WWE, Glenn Jacobs as Kane entered the Hall of Fame. No matter how Kane changed from his inception in 1997, he would never be as iconic as that first version of the gimmick, but over the years, the Kane character proved to be one of the most versatile and memorable acts in all of pro wrestling.